Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Emma Davey. I'm delighted that Emma agreed to join us on the podcast today. Emma is a Senior Clinical Nurse Specialist in Palliative Care. Emma came into palliative care early in her nursing career and found a love for the specialism and enjoys developing her skills and knowledge with the hospice staff. She's interested in HIV care and emerging themes with regards to supporting patients within her unit. In 2003, Emma undertook a Macmillan Palliative Care Clinical Nurse Specialist post, working in the community supporting the holistic need of both cancer patients and patients with non-malignancies and their families, before moving to an acute nurse specialist post in the District General Hospital for four years. In in 2021, she made the move to tertiary care in a specialist centre and continues to, f- to further her professional development and is currently studying for advanced clinical practice qualification. Emma has a strong passion for education and advanced care planning. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the podcast to talk about palliative care in the context of HIV care, something that I'm sure our listeners will be extremely interested to learn more about. So Emma, we've had the pleasure of having a couple of conversations now around this topic. So I'm aware that you're extremely passionate about this area of care, and I'm delighted that you're able to share your wisdom and thoughts with our listeners. But I'm just wondering for our listeners who may not be aware about what your role involves, if you'll just be able to explain to our listeners a little bit about your role, please. Oh, thank you, Michelle, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to have the opportunity to explain to people. So I work as a clinical nurse specialist in palliative care, um, a job that I'm as engaged and as passionate about now as I was over 20 years ago when I started. Um, so people will be familiar with the term palliative care And as a specialist palliative care nurse, we're supporting people who have got a level of need above that that the generalists are supporting. So as somebody with an incurable diagnosis, GPs, district nurses, hospital teams, 
occupational physiotherapists can support people's needs brilliantly throughout their illness. But within specialist palliative care, we receive referrals for people who have got complex needs or needs above and beyond that that the generalists can support. So no two days are the same. And when we talk about complex needs, that that can be, you know, the multifactorial. So if we think about physical needs that people have, maybe if people have problematic symptoms that um, generalists are struggling with, and that can be any symptom from pain to hiccups, itch, nausea, vomiting, sweats, poor sleep, the list is, you know, goes on and on. It can be people that have maybe got challenges socially related to their diagnosis. So I think sometimes we're not very good at necessarily thinking holistically. We focus very much on on the physical needs. But actually, if you think about um, losing an income due to serious illness, how are you going to pay your bills? Only two weeks ago, I had a patient telling me they were going to have to turn their oxygen concentrator down overnight because they couldn't afford the energy costs of running it. Um you know, if you think about maybe you're a busy parent and you're suddenly taken out of the game by serious illness or the treatment that that's involving, how that impacts on a family. And it could be people that maybe have significant emotional or spiritual distress. So maybe people that are depressed or struggling with anxiety. We support a lot of people who are maybe experiencing suicidal ideation as a relation to their to their illness. Um supporting people I guess just in living with uncertainty going forwards so the role is varied because of that um day to day I have a patient facing um aspect to my job so I run outpatients clinics where I see diagnose prescribe support outpatients we also cover um inpatient beds within the hospital within which I work So acting as an expert resource to the individuals themselves to help them self-manage and self-care and also to educate the the professionals around us with, you know, regards of our fields. So education is a huge part of of the role um, face to face with patients, but also in terms of running um, MSc modules with universities, uh, teaching undergraduate nurses as well and medical students and medics also. And then education and research is a part of the role as well, um, sort of shaping the way for the future for people and, and working on guidelines and how best to support people into the future. So every day is different. Lots of advanced care planning if people want it. But um, yeah, very varied role. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It does sound, from what you're saying, very, very exciting place to work and also very varied as well. And kind of just um, touching on what you said about kind of some of the wider determinants and those social factors and yeah, the cost of living. I'd never kind of even considered the impacts on people who required home, home care. So thank you for, for highlighting that, the, the nuances of providing care as well. So I'm I'm just wondering from your vast experience, um, what does it mean um, to be referred to palliative care? Because I'm I'm thinking that some of our listeners may be sat there now wondering, oh, okay, either do I need that service myself or, you know, how do I, what what kind of characteristics or what kind of things do people get referred to you for? And what does it mean for people to be referred to palliative care? 
I'm always so pleased to have the opportunity to clarify this because I think in some ways we're a, uh, a specialism in need of a facelift a little bit um, because actually the role of palliative care has changed massively over my career. So I think a good place to start, I guess, is just to define what palliative care means and how is that different from end-of-life care and dying because we find those phrases are used very interchangeably and I think when often offered palliative care referral people say oh no no I don't need you I'm not ready for that yet I don't want to talk about that so actually you're palliative if you're living with an incurable disease so people can be palliative for days weeks months years and decades and I guess nothing um, identifies that better really than than HIV care the Evolvement in medicine has been absolutely massive and you live now with a normal life expectancy with HIV if you're on treatment, um, as, as you'll all be aware. But actually it remains an incurable disease. So palliative refers to any disease that can't be cured. That might be metastatic cancer, um, you know, multitude of neurological conditions, things like Parkinson's, MS, motor neuron disease heart failure, renal failure, dementia, the list goes on and on. So palliative care is relevant at any point from diagnosis onwards. Language is so, so important and I follow with massive interest the work that Dr. Laura Waters is doing in HIV care and the People First Charter in terms of the way we use language and, you know, we think about HIV care, living with HIV, not HIV infected. It's so applicable to the field I work with. If you're palliative, you're living with, not dying from. And actually, for the majority of our patients, they're thriving with, thriving with incurable illness. So our role is about helping people to live well, to improve quality of life, to not count the days, but make the days count, as, as cheesy as that sounds at any stage from diagnosis onwards. So it might be that if you've just been diagnosed with a, an illness and you're starting on treatment, you've maybe got a lot of um, undesirable side effects. We might be involved to support those for a period of time, get you sorted out socially, physically, emotionally with what you're entitled to or what you, you, you is important to you. And then we back out and leave you to get on living your best life. But we're there to pick up at a time that things maybe become sticky or there is a period of deterioration. So in palliative care, nothing we do hastens somebody's deterioration. I don't treat the disease. So if you're um, receiving care for cancer, your oncologist will treat your disease. If you're receiving care for HIV, your HIV specialist team treat the disease. I focus on quality of life and living well, but also acknowledging that death is inevitable for us all in life. And it remains medically still a little bit of a taboo and a thing that we don't like to talk about very much. And actually, we affirm life, but we also acknowledge that death is inevitable and help people, if they wish, talk about that, plan for that, think about what their preferences would, would be. So palliative living with, how does that differ from end of life? So end-of-life care is the terminology that we tend to use for people who we feel could be approaching the last 12 months of their life. And that will also include those that are in the last days or hours of life. 
And you think, why, why is it important to define? We don't want to label people. Absolutely not. But actually, as health professionals, we try to ask ourselves, would we be surprised if this person died in the next 12 months? And if the answer is no, we could say that this person is approaching the end of their life. Now, why this is important within healthcare is because uh, the Department of Health recommended use of the gold standards framework, which is a framework used within general practice where GPs are encouraged to identify patients that they wouldn't be surprised if they died within the next 12 months. Obviously, if they don't, that's that's wonderful. Uh, by being identified doesn't mean you're any more likely to deteriorate. Um, but the purpose of this is that we then meet regularly with GP practices, palliative care teams, district nurses, occupational physiotherapists, benefits advisors. We try to meet regularly to discuss the patients on that register. Not all of them, because it could be thousands for some GP practices, but those that may be a traffic light red or amber, so maybe those that are imminently deteriorating or dying, or those that have particularly complex needs. And the purpose being that we can try not to firefight, but help patients plan in advance what they want. So have we thought about talking with this person about the fact that they are deteriorating? Have we thought about asking them where they want to live, where they want to die? Have we made sure that the benefits in place they're entitled to, the practicalities, the equipment, the care that might enable them to stay at home if that's their wish? So that is sort of the definition, if you like, of end-of-life care. And then dying as the third thing to talk about. Dying is the terminology that we use for people that we believe could be in the last days or hours of their life. Now, I think it's really important to say that if you present to hospital or um, medical professionals are called out to your house and you're living with, I don't know, late-stage HIV and maybe you've got... Um, a cardiovascular history as well that's been deteriorating heart failure. If you're unrousable, we wouldn't automatically assume that you're dying just because you've got late stage disease processes. We always look to reverse the reversible causes if that's what a patient wants. So if you presented to my hospital semi-conscious with late stage disease, we wouldn't say, oh, this person's dying would look for reversible causes first because you can have very extensive disease and then develop infection that can make you look like you're dying, but it can be treated very often and people will fully recover to their baseline. Or you might be hideously anemic or um, dehydrated. All of these things can muddy the water. So we would always look to exclude reversible causes. But when that's been done, if somebody's not improving, we come to the conclusion that actually this person is dying. I think it's really important when we recognize that somebody is sick enough to die, that we have that conversation with the person if they want it and if they're well enough, and also with their significant others. We use language in healthcare very often, like you do realize your relative is very poorly. And actually, poorly is the difference between a relative going home or a relative staying at a bedside. It's the difference between being admitted to hospital or maybe having a rapid discharge home so you can die at home. So if we feel somebody could die, we have the duty as health professionals to say the D word because there's no uncertainty in that. We all know what it means. And we often try and approach this that you've 
you've presented today very unwell. We hope for the best that we can do X, Y, and Z to improve things. But it's important that we do prepare you for the worst, that you are sick enough that you might die. And with that in mind, what would be important to you? So we do really try to promote that um, a, a lot. So it's changed. Palliative thriving in the face of uncertainty is what I kind of like to think of it as, Michelle. And there's definitions of palliative care, but actually I don't think anyone's ever defined it better than Patch Adams. Um, have you seen the film, Michelle? Patch I haven't, no, no. Yeah. Well, it's worth watching. It's based on a story and Robin Williams plays Patch Adams, but he was a real medical doctor in the 60s and he believed in treating people helping people by whatever means makes them better. So whether that's medicine or comedy or holistic therapies. But Patch Adams really famously said that if you treat the disease, sometimes you'll win and sometimes you'll lose. Whereas if you treat the person, you'll win every single time. That, I think, is one of the most powerful things that we really believe you need to support people by actually getting alongside them and understanding what's important to them because what matters to them might be very different to what matters to you. In medicine, we can be guilty sometimes of focusing on the scans and the bloods and the numbers. And I hear myself day on day, yeah, but what does the patient want? What do they understand? What do they want? You know, oh, the man with pancreatic cancer in room six. And I think he's not a man with pancreatic cancer in room six. He's David. He's a father. He's a brother. He's a lover. He's an architect. He's a Catholic. He's a terrible golfer and a good comedian. You know, he's so much more than his disease. And it's important we keep that focus on the person rather than the illness in, in healthcare. So that to me is what it means to be referred to palliative care. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for sharing that compassionate view of kind of having also what I was listening to is having some really tricky conversations, but in such a compassionate way. And also, I absolutely love that Patch Hazen's um, quote, you know, yeah, you're right. If we treat the disease, we'll win some other times, but, you know, treating the person, we win all the time. And I think that's definitely what we try to encapture within HIV care. So, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, with us. So you mentioned when you were talking about um, palliative care needing a facelift um, and you know you've kind of touched on that and I was just listening to all those wonderful things you were saying but I'm just wondering in your experience how has palliative care changed um, since you've been working in this area? Don't get me wrong, the fundamentals, that holistic person-centred care remains very much the same. But um, I think we do need a bit of a facelift. You know, I think sometimes people think of us as the brow moppers and the hand holders and the nice ones that will come and have a cup of tea and a chat. And, you know, I'm a mean brow, brow mopper. Um, it's definitely in my skill set. But actually, there's so much more to it than that. And it has changed vastly within my time in, in post. We're working in really, really exciting times, I think. Groundbreaking medicine, nothing demonstrates that more than HIV care. And I'm sure for many listeners, initially the mention of palliative care sort of elicits imagery of people emaciated, dying alone in institutions in the 80s, early 90s. 
And maybe for many health professionals working in HIV care, their role was probably born out of the palliative care role initially. But we're in a really exciting times that medicine has has changed. People are living, you know, with far increased life expectancy across the board with incurable illness. But actually increasing life expectancy can bring with it increasing complexity. Um, I think increased medical opportunities can sometimes, often, bring also increased challenges. So to try and unpick that a little bit, if you if we're looking at HIV care, you live a normal, healthy, active life as an HIV, um, somebody living with HIV. But we know that you're at significant risk of um, comorbidity, cardiovascular disease, hepatic disease. You're almost twice as likely to develop cancer in your lifetime as someone living with HIV as opposed to somebody who isn't. And we know that the research sort of demonstrates that someone living with HIV and a cancer diagnosis tends to have a more turbulent experience of oncology treatment because of the increased complexity of drug interactions, of side effects. And take the physical out of it. Think about being diagnosed with one life-changing diagnosis. Boom, we hit you with another. You, You know, the impact emotionally, financially, sexually, socially is so, so vast. I guess looking outside of HIV care into other areas, things like motor neurone disease have been an illness that has always had a difficult um, prognosis and, and remains so, but treatment has evolved. So, for example, now somebody living with motor neurone disease could be offered artificial hydration and nutrition at home. You can be non-invasively invasively ventilated in your own home. You live longer with your disease. But 15% of those patients who opt for those treatment options will then go on to develop a frontal lobe dementia because they're living longer with motor neurone disease. So the complexity increases. If I think about cancer, if you're diagnosed with incurable cancer, you can live, you know, particularly with things like metastatic breast cancer or prostate cancer, you can live for a decade or more. But the treatment tends to have side effects for people very often and we're seeing people maybe that have had curative treatment for cancer 20 years ago now coming back with a second third I saw a man this week who had his fourth primary cancer so none of these cancers had spread but four totally unrelated cancers so the complex I know it's it's mind-blowing the impact that has people are so resilient and I almost look like saying that because you know, I know as, a, as a, a patient once said to me, I'm not resilient, I just haven't got a choice and it really impacted on me. But the complexity has changed and there's a knock-on effect because of symptom control and the other things that we've talked about. Um, I think in terms of palliative care, hospices used to be viewed as somewhere that people went at the end of their life. And that remains um, a core part of the support hospice care offers. But actually, 70 to 80% of everybody admitted to a hospice goes home again. They go in for symptom control. They go in for IV antibiotics, blood transfusions, drainage of pleural effusions or um, abdominal ascites. It's evolved as a specialism with a focus much on living well rather than dying from. Thank you. Yeah, so massive, massive changes as you've just articulated really well. And I think 
you know, my own journey into HIV care as well. I did come in to look after people who were coming towards the end of their life, you know, because that's what the time um, was in HIV care. And I'm just absolutely delighted that we've evolved um, as a disease area. But it's also kind of worth thinking about, like you've, you've, you've articulated, you know, death is something that will happen eventually. So how do we prepare for that um, in, in a positive way, I guess, is where I'm trying to go with that. So thank you so much for, for sharing the changes. So Emma, I'm just wondering, um, I'm definitely inspired listening to you. I could listen to you speak all day about this topic. It's kind of rekindled some some of my own passions as well around um, palliative care. But I'm just wondering, for nurses working in HIV care, um, where could they go to access more information around this area of care? It's tricky, isn't it? Because I think, as we all know, services vary hugely in different areas and particularly in different in different countries as well. And I think it's also relevant to say that a, um, palliative care is a, an evolving specialism and expansion is something I'm sure that we will see as time goes on. But not everybody diagnosed with a palliative condition needs specialist palliative care support. Um, there's not the capacity within the service to offer that, nor the need, because actually there's such incredibly knowledgeable staff supporting different illnesses um, that can manage people through a palliative illness very, very well. But if actually you're somebody working in HIV care and you have got um, an individual under your support who's maybe got complex needs and they don't need necessarily to be physical, um, I would advise really the first sort of point of contact would be your local specialist palliative care team. So if you're working in a community, the primary care trust would be able to identify where your local community team are. Most district general hospitals or specialist cancer centres have um, palliative care teams that sit within them. Um, or equally, hospices are also a really good source of support. And it might be that actually you just need a bit of side posting or, or, or guidance rather than actually referral. Um, and I would say if you're questioning, if you think somebody's got needs that might benefit from that, the phone, you know, we would always welcome the conversation because I like to think that the support is invaluable for those that it is appropriate for. Um, there's quite a lot of research that supports the early involvement of palliative care. So not just at the dying phase, but at any point from diagnosis for people with complex needs significantly impacts both people's quality of life, which is, I guess, what our focus is, but it's also got a massive cost saving for the NHS. And I am not in this job for the money. I don't, I don't think any, any of us in healthcare are. That's not the focus. But actually, the evidence supports that early involvement with palliative care means that people have less hospital admissions, less A&E attendances, shorter stays in hospital when they are linked in appropriately because their symptoms can be managed or their issues supported and turn around to get home if that's what they want more quickly. So there's a cost saving for the patients, but also there's evidence that supports that actually it extends prognosis for some patients quite significantly. And you, you wonder how that happens, but actually I guess if you're having, and I use, I use cancer as an example, um, 
you know, if I think of somebody I support at the moment who's um, living with HIV and also has a head and neck cancer, and actually good symptom control for the very radical treatment they're having for their cancer means that they will continue that treatment longer rather than maybe saying, you know what, I've had enough of this, I don't want it any longer. So it can improve prognosis. This isn't about life at all costs. People have a choice and it's promoting that choice. And actually, if people choose not to engage with palliative care services or to opt out of treatment, that is absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. And we're there to show people that there are an alternative way forwards aside about treatment if that's not what they want. Um, and equally, for anybody working in HIV care, I think there's huge opportunities for increased collaboration between the two specialities. So, yeah, get get in touch. We we have as much to learn from your expertise as as vice versa. So we always really really encourage that. <laughs> yeah, definitely, that's the future. So Emma, I've had the privilege of having quite a few guests on the show. Um, and one of the things that I'm always looking for is creating ideal care or care that we can aspire to deliver. Or, you know, we never know who's listening or who here we may plant a seed to create a, a future world where, you know, um, where care is delivered differently. So I'm just thinking with regards to palliative care, you touched on that kind of the collaborative working. But I'm just wondering, how would you like to see palliative care services being implemented into HIV care? It's such a big question, isn't it? And I'm, I'm irritatingly enthusiastic about this, Michelle, I really am. And actually within the area I work at the moment, we're actually just looking at doing some work between the um, HIV team locally and also the oncology team to see how we can try and improve that integration and collaboration. I think within um, cancer care, there's a new model sort of developing within a, um, uh, specialist cancer centres called enhanced supportive care. Because very often, if people are referred palliative care at the point of diagnosis with incurable disease, it terrifies them. They, they back away very, very quickly. But actually, given what I was saying about the improvement in quality of life and cost savings for the NHS and extended prognosis for people, people are now within tertiary cancer centres being offered referral to enhanced support care services at diagnosis. So those tend to be predominantly run by specialist palliative care teams. We will see people who are having palliative treatment or radical curative treatment for cancers that we know will come with a lot of side effects or symptoms. And we're working alongside the oncologist to support that as somebody goes through that that sort of pathway of treatment. And I really like the thought of that being sort of incorporated into HIV care where it's appropriate for those with complexity. Um, I hate this term, hard to reach groups. I like lead that actually there's not hard to reach groups within healthcare, there's inaccessible healthcare. And I think when we're looking at palliative care, when we're looking at dying with HIV, we're very fortunate not to see that very often at all these days. But actually for those who maybe are dying as a result of late stage HIV, 
expecting them to come to a hospice appointment three weeks on Tuesday is not likely to happen because on the whole, in my experience, and please say if you feel differently, the only people dying of late stage HIV are maybe those for whom their HIV isn't the greatest priority and therefore they can't be adherent to their treatment. So if I've got severe mental health issues or if I've got codependency with with other substances, um, if my immigration status is uncertain, if English isn't my first language, if I'm living below the poverty line, I'm unlikely to then prioritise referral to palliative care or coming into hospice care or attending outpatients. So in an ideal world, I'd love to see increased collaboration between the exceptionally experienced HIV teams that are supporting these these people to collaborate with us to actually try and take our care to them if they want it, to help people make an informed choice. And actually, if they don't, that's absolutely fine. But very often, these are the sorts of people with the greatest needs and maybe the people that we do unfortunately see dying in A&E because they've never been given that opportunity to think about the future and what they would want and advanced care plan. We totally respect some people's decision not to engage with care. Absolutely respect that. But we're never ever in a situation that there's nothing more we can do. We might not be able to improve your life expectancy or your prognosis, and that might also be your choice. But what we can do is focus on what matters to you. So that might be where you die, what happens to your dog, who looks after your children, who is or is with you when you die, what happens to your longings. So I, I think there's great scope for increase, increasing collaboration going forward. I've gone off at a complete tangent, Michelle. Sorry. Well, that's that's absolutely fine. Yeah, no, just listening to you and, you know, I hear what you're saying. Sometimes the people that need us the most are the people that we sometimes struggle to engage with. And, it, and it's not, like you say, it might not be a priority because they've got other things going on so yeah so reaching out and that collaborative working is a great way to ensure that people get the care that they need when they need it so thank you so much for sharing that with us Um, and thank you so much for being part of the podcast so now it's time to get to know you a little bit better Um, so I'm just wondering if you could share with our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care I love live music, Michelle, and I'm a I'm a really cheap date. I don't care what it is. Um, I really realised during COVID actually how much that was important for my self care to be out listening to. And you know, I think about the last couple of weeks. I've been fortunate to come to London to see Moulin Rouge, which I absolutely loved. Um, and I'm going tomorrow to see Elton John, which I'm counting counting down counting down the days to see. So yeah, I'd love to dance badly and I think that's probably um probably one of the greatest things in self-care and I've got three three little children as well and they keep me massively grounded I never appreciate them more than in the job that I do when I'm seeing time snatched from families all the time so um they're really important to think in my self-care and keeping me grounded as well despite the the chaos (laughs) oh yeah no that's wonderful and yeah similar to you I I love live music. We have to see a chairman tonight, which I can't wait. So yeah, and I think I think you don't realise all the things that bring you joy um, until you can't do them. So yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. 
Can you also share with us a book that you've been reading? Oh, you know, I've been so grateful to your podcast in terms of recommendations for books, Michelle, honestly. Um, oh, I've, I've read so many of the recommendations for, that your your guests have made. Um, I loved All the Young Men, which I think I think it was John uh, suggested that early, early on. And recently finished Juno Roche's um, A Working Class Family Ages Badly, which I know, uh, I think it was Joe Joss recommended that. Um, and that was like one of the most incredibly powerful, raw memoirs I've ever read. And actually, sort of their interpretation of things has completely changed my way of thinking. So I'm really grateful to your guests for these re- recommendations. I've just finished Empire of Pain by Patrick O'Keefe. Um, Patrick Radden Keith, it is, sorry, which has been quite um an eye-opening read really for me. So it's it's a it's a true story. Um following the rise and fall of the Sackler billionaire family in America. And this is the three brothers that were behind the formation of Purdue Pharma, a pharmaceutical company which made Valium and then went on to make other drugs. And they developed the blockbuster drug OxyContin. Now, OxyContin is a medication that I prescribe very frequently for patients with incurable, um, severe cancer pain, and it works very effectively. But actually, this story um, focuses on how this drug was very, very aggressively marketed in America as safe and non-addictive for non-malignant pain. And it sort of documents and details the opiate crisis that fell out from that, that claimed hundreds of thousands of lives across America. Um, sort of a story where profit eclipses the ethical and the mor- moral ethos behind prescribing. Um, and this very, very, very rich family who were sort of almost hidden and um, e- eclipsed by sort of their wealth and their social status from any responsibility. So it's been it's been a mind blowing read for me, um, and highly highly recommend it. It's an investment <laughs> in terms of reading it. It's a big book, but um, really really interesting. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'll be definitely adding that to my book list. Yeah, and I, I agree. I the reason why we introduced this section um, was because I always I go into the bookstores and I see all the books and like oh I get paralysed by choice. So I've been delighted that I've been able to to pick people's brains and increase my reading as well so thank you that's definitely on my list of books to read and um, such a, a fascinating topic as well so thank you so finally another big question to end our show on so if time money and resources weren't an issue what would you like to change or seen done differently i'm hoping one day i get a magic wand and i can go back in time and grab all these I always, I always think that if there's a crystal ball, I'd be the first to invest. It would make my job so much easier in terms of living with uncertainty. Um, it's such a tricky question, isn't it, to answer, Michelle, and also to answer it without it sounding like a Miss World speech as well. <laughs> yeah, it's really tricky. Um, I think in terms of medicine, a world, well, just with increasing access and increasing integration and where our patients' voices are actually the predominant voice that we're hearing. Um, yeah, I think it comes back very much, I find it a tricky question to answer, but it really comes back to that that whole question of 
a world where we treat the person, not the disease, and where our priority really is on what matters to that individual. And in an ultimate magic world question, you know, question, it would be actually to make sure there was no incurable illness. But I appreciate I'd be doing myself out of a job very, very quickly. Um, I'd happily go off and be a florist. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'd be in that bookshop. Um, and you yeah. can have a florist next to me. But yeah, no, that's... yeah. we'll collaborate. <laughs> we'll collaborate in our bookshop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Thank you so much, yeah. And I think that is, it is always a tricky question. So thank you so much again for your time. And I'm sure this will be a conversation that we keep continuing as the world of HIV care continues to evolve and change. So thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.